Hey guys, welcome back to Cedar and Cypress Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you are having a wonderful day, a wonderful week, a wonderful April, whatever's going on in your life. I just hope that it's well and I hope that you are well. And today we are going to be jumping into my thoughts on the Asbury Revival. If you're following the news, you know that I'm also kind of late on talking about this. I uploaded a Holy Week episode that was weeks after Easter and Holy Week, but because whatever is true on Easter is true every single day of the year and every single day onward for eternity. I thought it was still, you know, worth uploading and, and things like that, recording, editing, and uploading. And I think the same is true for commentary in the Asbury Revival, just because I wanted to allow quite a bit of time to pass before I said anything about it. I definitely had my thoughts as it was going on. This happened back in February, and right now I'm recording this in late April. But I did want to still give some thoughts on it, maybe help you make sense of what was going on, or maybe just provide a little bit of commentary. You might have a completely different opinion than I do, and I think that is great, and I would love to hear what you think on it. I'm just here to kind of share a little bit about my thoughts on it because I wanted to allow some time to pass because I didn't think it would be as helpful to comment on it and to talk about it as it was happening, just because it was still happening. And I wanted to see what it would, how it would conclude, what things were going to look like. And it's quite different from anything we've done on this podcast before because Liv and I really intentionally wanted this podcast to be something that you can return to, subjects that are constant and something you can return to all the time and they're relevant all the time. I don't want it to be a news podcast. I don't want it to be a live by live as things are happening. We're commenting on the culture and the society and things that are happening in the news as it relates to Christianity or the Christian community in the United States or across the world. That is not what I intend for this podcast to be, but I thought it would still be helpful to maybe help you make sense of it a little bit or maybe just give you food for thoughts and things to think about as we continue on in life as we continue to walk this walk that is the Christian life that is challenging and in this journey we may be seeing things like this in the future like reform or revival or things like that and so I I thought it would still be helpful to maybe jump in and just provide some thoughts that I had as it was going on and now that it has concluded some of the things that crossed my mind and 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 things while while that was happening and I wanted to just share I'm concluding a Bible study that I've been doing with my church. The women's Bible study has been going through the book of Nehemiah, the prophet Nehemiah's book. And let me tell you, this book is all about revival. And so it's an it was such a cool book to be going through at the time that Asbury was going on. So we've been going through the book of Nehemiah since the beginning of January, I believe, or like mid-January. And right now it's late April and we're concluding quite soon. And Nehemiah's 13 chapters, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Ezra is a separate book the way we see it in our Bibles now. But at the time when it was written, it was one scroll. So there's a lot of context and, and information that in Ezra that will help you understand Nehemiah. But the gist of Nehemiah, if I can give you a huge bird's eye overview, as Nehemiah is a guy who loves God and is dedicated to God, and he's working in the Persian palace at the time, and he finds out that Jerusalem, which is God's city, if you're kind of familiar with Jewish history, Jerusalem was the center of, it was God's city. It was where Israel lived. It's where they dwelled. And often in ancient times, if a city was dedicated to a certain God, it was representative of who that God was. And Nehemiah finds out that the walls are in shambles. It's like on fire. It's just like completely abandoned and ruined. And he's really upset about this because he cares so much about God and God's reputation. Not that that what we think about God changes who he actually is, but he cared so much about about honoring God and the fact that God was not being honored by the fact that his city was in complete shambles. And so he wanted to go back and rebuild. He asked the king, can I go back? Can I get your permission to go back to Jerusalem and build this city back up? This is my history. This is my heritage. I would really like to do this. King gives him permission, which is countercultural in and of itself. A king allow the Persian king allowing Nehemiah to go back in to build a city to another king or another god, if that makes sense, because at the time, kings were kind of revered as gods or as idols. So that's counterculture in itself. Nehemiah goes back. He faces a lot of opposition from enemies and people that don't want him to rebuild and are not interested in helping him. But what Nehemiah does is he comes back to this, this community of Israelites 
And he sparks, he sparks revival. He says, you guys have not been following the Torah. You guys have not been following God's law, which we find in the first five books of the Bible. You guys have not been following the ways of God in, in such a long time. And things have to change, guys. Like, we have to get back on track. We have to rebuild this wall. We have to rebuild God's city. We have to inhabit it. We have to take care of it. We need to make it flourish again. And so begins this process of rebuilding this wall. And when I mean wall, I'm meaning like a huge wall, like a 20-foot it's a, it was a huge wall. And so it was a feat of architecture at the time. I'm not talking like a, am putting up a fence around my yard or anything like that. It was the wall for a city to encase it and to isolate it from enemies and to protect it from enemies, as well as allow people to dwell there and, and flourish there. And so the Israelites who have not been following God's law in such a long time are sparked to revival. They want to reform their lives. They're convicted of the fact that they have not been following God's law. And they're like, we we want to make a change. We want to change everything. We're willing to do that. Help us figure out how to do that. And I thought it was so amazing that we were going through this book at the same time this revival was happening because in my lifetime, I haven't seen a revival like this or haven't ever really seen a news story like this. And so it's really cool to kind of be studying these chapters in Nehemiah where Israel is turning back to the Lord. They have these emotional, highly spiritual experiences and responses to what God is doing in their lives. And we kind of see that similar thing that happened in Asbury at Asbury University. And we see that the Holy Spirit was moving there. So because I have this frame of lens, this frame of reference through just studying Nehemiah and coming out of that, I, I want to kind of use Nehemiah as a biblical lens to, from which to view this and to understand it. What I'm not doing here, I want to be extremely clear, is taking this event in modern day and extrapolating and applying it into the Bible to get what we want out of it or to say that certain things are good or bad or, you know, this happened to the Israelites, so it's happening here again. What I'm trying to do is help you see, take put on the biblical lens and use a book of the Old Testament in order to look at something that is happening right now to understand it better. And so I just want to give you a quick rundown. If you're not super familiar with what happened at Asbury, there's also no shame in that too. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm going to kind of give you a rundown of what happened. So Asbury, uh, Asbury University is a Christian university in Wilmore, Kentucky. And essentially what happened, I'm kind of looking through the Wikipedia article to give you some of this information, is that a revival was sparked by students who spontaneously stayed at the auditorium after a regularly scheduled chapel service. So this happened on February 8th. I believe it was a Wednesday. And so if you went to a Christian university like I did for college, you know that there was there are often chapel services on like a, on a Wednesday afternoon. That's typically when my university holds them. And so this was just like a regular everyday Wednesday. It was a normal day. So students came in. There was a sermon and everything like that. There was worship and they just stayed. People just stayed. People just decided to stay and continue worshiping. I believe there was some teaching to my understanding. There was a lot of song worshiping and song. And if you saw the clips on YouTube or Twitter or TikTok or any whatever social media that you use, I saw a lot of it through YouTube are these really beautiful, beautiful videos of people singing hymns and singing worship songs and just honoring the Lord and worshiping him and praising him, which was really cool to see. It was really cool to see young people come together and want to do that just because being a younger person myself... I don't find that there's often like this huge spark of passion for Jesus in young people, or at least the young people that I've been surrounded with in my life. I find that your young, your 20s are kind of the time where you decide you're going to do this God thing, you're not going to do this God thing. I'm either out or I'm in. I'm, I'm for God or I'm not for God. I'm going to live my own life. So it's really cool actually to see this. It, it quickly turned into this like phenomenon where... <laughs> Students were coming back who maybe had left and were returned. It was going into the night. I'm not really sure exactly when it became a news story, but I just remember hearing that, hey, there was a chapel service and kids are just staying. People are just staying. These college students are so interested in being here. And so what ended up kind of happening is that people from all over the U.S. started to flock to Kentucky to visit the university. And if you saw some of the videos of the chapel, it's not like it was this ginormous chapel. It was, you know, a decent sized building, but it was a small enough auditorium that it was just packed with people. And from this Wikipedia article that I'm looking at, it is showing that it, it was attended this 
this chapel service by approximately 15,000 people each day. And by the end, the revival had brought about 50 to 70,000 visitors to Wilmore. And so this like small town, this small university had tens of thousands of people visiting and it, it went from February 8th to February 24th. That's a pretty decent chunk of time. That's like two and a half weeks. And so that was that's crazy amount of time for a chapel service to just keep going into the night every night and just keep on going. But I think it was really cool. It's something that I've never seen happen before, but I will just kind of share my own bias here is that I tend to sometimes be a little bit skeptical. Of, of things like this, just because, just because I, that's my personality. It's my personality to analyze things, to pick things apart, to look at the details, to look at the fine information. That's just how I was wired. That's the person that I am. And so I tend to sometimes be a little bit more skeptical or cynical about things like that. Also, because I have seen revival or charisma be kind of abused in the church or by the church, or maybe we wouldn't even say these were people who are actually in the church, but people who have weaponized the emotional responses that people have to spiritual experiences in order to get things from them, like money or to get high attendance in churches or to, to earn fame. Like, you know, we have some prosperity gospel or celebrity pastors that tend to weaponize the emotional side of what is the Christian life and is of the human experience. For their own gain. And so I tend to sometimes feel like I need to take a second and see if this is really for real. I want to see what's being preached. I want to hear the lyrics of the songs that are being seen. I want to be that person who who does kind of pick it apart. But I also, on the flip side of that, don't want to be somebody who is exceedingly or overly critical or judgmental of something that is happening. Because it was really cool to to see the fact that people were actually young people were interested in staying and worshiping God and, and things like that. And so for me, there was also a part of me that was super excited to see something like this happening and see this revival and this passion, this kind of reform that seemed to be happening in young people. And so we saw this really emotional change in people. People were compelled to stay there and to keep worshiping. And this kind of go back, goes back to what I was saying with what happened in Nehemiah. The same thing was true for Israel. And they had had a long period. I'm not 100% sure, but at least years and maybe even a few generations of Israelites who had not been obeying God's commands. People who had strayed very far from the way they were supposed to live and they had been not following God likely had idols in their life. One of the issues that they also had was having people in their community or in their relationships or in their marriage who were not of Israel and were not following God's way. Now, let me caveat this. Let me make sure that I qualify this and explain to you that in the Torah, there are specific provisions for someone who was not born into Israel, who was not part, like didn't have a heritage or ancestry in Israel. If they wanted to follow the one true God, they were absolutely welcome to because this is consistent with the character of God. He doesn't reject people based on their ethnic background or their race or their family background or anything that's happened that is, you know, outside of their control, God accepts everyone. And so God had specific provisions that if you were not from Israel, there are certain things that you can do mainly was turning away from all your idols or the idols of the people, of your people, in order to worship the one true God, as well as following the Israelite law. So you were definitely allowed to be part of God's family if you chose to reject the idols. But Specifically, what we're seeing was one of the issues with Israel is that they had accepted people into their community who were not willing to do that. So there was within Israel lots of people who worshipped idols and likely had led other people in Israel astray, whether by marrying with them or becoming their friends or working with them or just being part of their community. Israel had allowed sin to seep into their communities. So had they had this long period of not obeying God's command. And what we saw happen with Azra and what we also saw, see what happens in Nehemiah's case is that the people had emotional and spiritual fervor. They had a hunger to return to God's ways. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're kind of jumping in partway through the book, but I wanted to bring this passage to your attention from Nehemiah 8. The people have asked, the people of Israel have asked Ezra to read the law to them. So they have specifically requested this themselves. They were willing and they were interested and they were wanting to hear from it. So Ezra takes the scroll. He brings the law. We don't know exactly which book or which scroll he was reading from. Likely it was Deuteronomy or Numbers or one of the books of law that we're more familiar with. He comes up on a wooden platform. He's on this hill and he's reading the law, the scroll and the law to the people. And they're attentive. They stand up, actually. They honor it. They honor God's law and they stand up to listen to it. 
Additionally, they have a posture of worship. They bow their heads down. They worship with their faces to the ground. They are reverent. They are 100% there for it. Later on in the passage, Nehemiah says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. The people, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law, likely for a lot of reasons, likely because they were convicted about the sin in their hearts and the way they had not been following God's law. And they were weeping for that, but probably also gratefulness with the fact that they are having this opportunity, they have this chance, they have religious leaders and they have prophets in front of them who know the law well and can teach them how to return to that. So they were weeping, they were they were repentant. So the Levites calmed all the people, this is in verse 11 now, and said, be quiet for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And then the religious leaders instructed them to actually go and essentially have a party, have a celebration for the fact of what just happened. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And that was verse 12. So essentially, the, the religious leaders saying, go celebrate, like have a party. Don't just weep and mourn. Like there is a time, yes, to weep and mourn, to repent, to be to be anguished at the bad choices you have made and the sin that is in your life and you need to be turning from that but go and celebrate have a party with the fa- for the fact that there is an opportunity there is a way for you to return back and God wants you to come back and he the angels are rejoicing at the fact that you're returning back God is is pleased with the fact that you you are grieved over your sin and you want to return I would go so far as to say for the, anyone who was at the Asbury Revival who genuinely in their hearts, and this can be judged only, you know, by God himself, who genuinely in their hearts were repentant for sin and wanted revival in their life and reform and started to make changes that were genuinely life, that the same was true, that God was certainly and genuinely pleased by that because we can't be the ones to judge whether or not anybody there was you know, sincere in their hearts. And I'm sure that with the tens of thousands of people that visited in those two and a half weeks, that there were people who were genuine, that the Holy Spirit genuinely moved sincerely in their lives and they were spurred to make change in their lives. But one of the reasons why I wanted to wait to make this episode until some time had passed was because, because the lesson that we actually learned from Nehemiah's, the prophet Nehemiah in this book, is that reform and revival has to include lasting change. There has to be something that comes after. This includes action. This includes discipleship. There's equipping. There needs to be follow-up to something like this. We can't just have this huge crazy spiritual revival and not have genuine planning, strategic planning, and faithful equipping that occurs after that. And there's a lot of examples and there's biblical precedent for this in Nehemiah. If you read through the next few chapters of Nehemiah, you'll see people all had their jobs. There was temple service, there were religious leaders, there were gatekeepers, there were musicians, there were people who had to tend to the farms. There were people who all had specific jobs in this Israelite community, in these people that were returning to the city, rebuilding it and honoring God again. They had duties, they had jobs. There was strategic planning on Nehemiah and Ezra and other religious leaders' part. There was faithful equipping that they had done of these people. They had taught them the law. They had returned them to the law and they had said, go out, go do these things in honor of the Lord. But as much as God has spiritually revived you and reformed you at this moment, you still have work to do. You still have a life to lead. There's still more that needs to happen. And this just points to the fact that any reform, and I I do actually kind of like to use the reform even more than the word revival because reform is a completely, it's not just, you know, reviving life and coming back to life and having this emotional and spiritual experience, but reform is genuine change. Reform in your life needs to be lasting and it has to be pervasive. It has to be pervasive across all parts of your life, not just some. So you can't just have this spiritual revival or this reform or this emotional or spiritual high that you're experiencing and then come back and be an unchanged person. Kind of a personal example that I can give you to help, you know, help add some detail and color to this is the fact that I grew up in like middle and high school going to youth group summer camps. And I think I went maybe only a couple years, two or three years, but those times I experienced crazy spiritual highs because I was around people that were always all Christian. And I was around faith leaders. I was around pastors and other leaders who were teaching and preaching. And then furthermore, we had worship music. All the activities and games were centered around building community and fellowship. It was a complete just being surrounded almost in a faith bubble. And so I would experience this spiritual high when I go for a week or two on a summer spiritual or a summer youth group camp, which is great. Those those times are really important. And I think that those summer camps helped me a lot. But in the time when I was younger, it almost kind of just tided me over through the next academic year and all the pain that was high school and all the 
the just awkwardness of growing up and making friends and all that kind of thing, those those spiritual experiences, while they were super helpful at the time, I would look back and I would say, I don't know if they were necessarily lasting, not because God didn't move, but because I wasn't willing to make the changes and and act accordingly to what I had learned and what I had gained from those experiences. Like if I could go back, there was, there's things that I would have changed. There's things that I would have done differently because I, if I had wanted that reform to be more lasting in my life, then I would have come home and I would have taken more action on those things that I knew needed to change in my life, whether that was my relationship with my family or my parents, my siblings, or with my friends or just anything like that. And the same thing is true for any students who were at the Asbury Revival or anyone who attended it really and, and got something out of it, that there needs to be action. There needs to be something that you're doing afterwards that is taking a faithful step in obedience to the word that you received, the direction that you received. I, you know, I heard testimonies that people were like called to missions while they were there or that they, they felt like God was telling them to go this direction in their life. And so if that is lasting, if that is true, and if you have discerned using the word of God and the guidance of other people who are faithful to God, that that's the movement that you should take in your life, then by all means. What I'm really trying to say here is that if you're experiencing revival, you need to act on it. If you're if God is reforming something in your life, you need to actually be willing to, to be obedient in that, to love and to serve others. And last week we talked about on this podcast with the Holy Week meditation that what would compel us to give up our lives and and to serve others and put others before ourselves as the example of Jesus, that he was compelled to do such a crazy thing as die on a cross for other people who rejected him so that we could live because he was compelled by obedience to God. He was obedient to the Father. He was humble enough to not think of himself as more important than everyone else. And then he deeply loved people. He wanted other people to be saved. And so he put himself after others. He put everyone else before himself. And so if we've experienced any kind of revival or reform in our life, to be seeking ways to be implementing that as well. Who can I love? How can I love them? Who needs outreach? Who are people that I can invest in? How can I serve other people? In what ways do people feel served? How can I you know, truly love people? How can I demonstrate humility? How can I exemplify that for other people? Who do I need to be obedient to? Like if we're teenagers or we're still at home, if we need to be obedient to our parents or obedient unto our teachers or other authorities that God has placed in our lives. And as we get older, as we get married, like for me, who do I need to be submitting to and following the direction of my husband or honoring your parents or honoring your parents in law or elders at your church? Like there's always going to be someone over you, whether that's your boss or somebody else. Who do I need to be honoring and being humble to and submitting to? And how can I serve other people, whether that's that that's people in my circle, in my community, and that could be the people that you work with or the people that you see at church or any other group or sport or any kind of organization or thing that you might involved with by be involved with seeking those small ways and opportunities to be willing to implement that emotional or spiritual experience that you had into your daily life. That is what makes the change lasting. That is what we see happening in the chap the chapters of Nehemiah and what happens with Israel is that they're willing to move back into Jerusalem, move back into the city and honor God once more. But that takes so much work. It took them starting the city back up from the ground up, being willing to leave the farms that they were li living on to move back into the city and start everything up again to treat the temple with respect and honor again. And the same thing goes for us that, you know, as our bodies are temples to the Holy Spirit, that we're taking time to spend with him. And that's that's another big part of it as well, just being willing to implement those small things in our lives, those practical applications in our life to actually follow God on a daily basis and not just for two and a half weeks at a time when there's something really exciting happening or when things seem to be going really well. I wanted to share a little bit of the insight that I, I earned and gained from looking at David Gusick's commentary, which is his Enduring Word commentary that you can access for free online, all available. There's commentary in every single verse of the Bible if you're interested. And I use this tool all the time if I'm just not really sure what the verse means or I need a little bit of explanation. I'll use this tool in corroboration with other tools like looking at the original language and looking at my study Bible notes and other resources and things like that. But from Nehemiah 13, which is the last chapter of Nehemiah, I wanted to share some of the insight that I, I gained from that because it talks about different kinds of reforms, different kinds of revival that happen in our lives. So from this example, the main ones that David Gusick picks out are temple reforms, financial reforms, 
priority reforms and relationship reforms. So these big four categories here. And I firmly am convinced, I am convinced that these four categories are still incredibly important for us today. And we can use these principles and these categories that Israel had to go through to also apply to our lives as well. We can take those principles that were occurring for Israel and we can use that as a lens to determine if there's anything in our life that needs to change in certain categories. And maybe there's something that changed in every category or maybe we're doing really well, but I just wanted to present this to you in a way that would kind of be helpful for you to compartmentalize and maybe pick out things for you to identify with and potentially work on with in your relationship with God. So the first one are the temple reforms. So Nehemiah, after he had helped rebuild the city, is understood that there is likely a chance that he returned back to the palace in Persia where he was working under the Persian king. And then he returned back again to Israel after some time. We don't know exactly how long, but the commentary does kind of give some of those details. And so he returns and he sees that there are some things that are going on that are not quite according to the law. And so he came, he came back, and he discovered that there's this guy dwelling in the temple and in the temple who is actually not of God and a guy who is really not a great dude. And he's pretty upset about it. This temple of God that is meant to be dedicated to God is being occupied by someone who is pagan. That David Gusick explains that this guy is pagan. He had a history of opposing God's work when Nehemiah was rebuilding the city. And so he's so frustrated that the spiritual leader of the temple would allow this to happen because it doesn't look great for him. But then furthermore, there's a chance that people in Israel are being led astray by this guy who is in the temple. He's renting out rooms. This guy is being allowed to have interaction with the community with people who are meant to be of God. And this guy is not of God. What the, what the principle that I pull from this is that because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that our lives are meant to be a fragrant offering to God. It has to be continually and consistently transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so the farther we get along in our walk, the more and more that we become like Christ. And so the holier we become, the more consecrated we become. We are set apart for Christ. And so ideally, if you are walking in the Christian faith, over time, you become more sanctified and more holy. And this means, again, like I mentioned in last episode, you have a repulsion to sin. It is abhorrent to you. And so you should have a reversion to an aversion to it such that God is transforming your life and and weeding those things out of your life. So your life should be bearing fruit. In other words, your life should be an example of Christ. You should look like Christ. You should talk like Christ. You should walk like Christ. You should not be somebody who is angry and bitter and upset and complains and is resentful. And I could just, you know, go on with the list of all the different things. If you're being truly and sincerely transformed by the Holy Spirit, your life and your character continues to get better and better every single day. And it doesn't mean you won't stumble. It doesn't mean you won't make mistakes, but it means that you're being sanctified. It means that continually sin is going to be weeded weeded out of your life. So if you have been a Christian for a very long time and you have incredibly deep and crippling sin still in your life, something needs to change because you are a temple to the Holy Spirit. You are meant to be a representative of Jesus's dwelling place place and where Jesus lives, sin cannot live at the same time. But those two things are mutually exclusive. Jesus's presence and the presence of sin in your life need to be mutually exclusive. The same was true for the temple and Nehemiah. So if you have experienced revival or you've participated in reform of some kind, whether that was going on at your church or, you know, if you attended Asbury Revival or if you ever are part of revival in your, in your future, Sin is consistently being pushed out of your life in ways that might be painful, but you're participating actively with God in that. That means you're willing to repent. You are turning to Christ. You are confessing your sin. You know that you're forgiven for it, but you're also walking in community with other Christians and leaders and mentors who can help you with that. And you're unwilling to allow something to dwell in you as a temple of the Holy Spirit that is pagan or is not from God. That can be so many different things. That could be a relationship that is not honoring to God. That could be an attitude that you have that is on not honoring to God. That could be something that you're engaged in, whether it's a behavior or a habit or something. 
it could be anything. I'm hoping that the way I'm phrasing this is bringing things to mind for you, but you are not able to be a holy temple to, to the Holy Spirit and can have like a consistent pattern of sin in your life because if you have been revived the way the Israelites were, you're not going to be willing to allow something to dwell and fester in your heart and your soul and your mind and in your life that is not honoring to God. So like Nehemiah, you should be grieved if you're noticing anything idolatrous or adulterous or pagan that's in your heart or in your life and be willing to work on getting rid of it. And that could be a painful road. That could be challenging. I don't know what that looks like for you. But what I'm trying to really get at, what I'm really getting at is that Jesus and sin are not in the same area. So if Jesus is in your heart, he is continually pushing sin out of your life. That's an indicator that Christ is truly working in your life. The Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in your life. And you can also see the fruits of the Spirit give you an idea of what those things would look like. From Galatians 5, this is the famous passage. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. And this doesn't mean you'll be perfect in it. It doesn't mean that this will always be in every moment exemplary in your life. But if you are not seeing any of these things and you don't feel like you're growing or truly have any of these things in your life, then maybe that's an indicator that your temple is what you need to work on, being a temple to the Holy Spirit. The second one is financial reforms. This one is really interesting just because it kind of seemed, it just seems very different from the first thing, first one that we talked about. Well, when Nehemiah had returned, he had noticed that the portions for the Levites were not being given to them. A little bit of background without getting too into the weeds of the Levites is that they were the priestly tribe. So every single one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob, which had come from his line, which were his 12 sons, ended up inheriting a portion of the land that God had given to them, except for this one tribe, which was the Levites. Their inheritance was actually God himself and being able to be priests. So not every single Levite was necessarily a priest, but if you had a priest, they had to be a Levite. So that was their heritage. That was their inheritance. This is explained briefly in Numbers 18. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall not have no inheritance among the people of Israel. What Nehemiah saw when he had returned is that that thing wasn't happening, that that needed to be happening. So the tithes were not actually going to the Levites. They were not receiving their due portion and their inheritance in order to support themselves and to keep the temple running and all the logistics that it cost for them to be doing all those things. And so if you know anything about the temple, there was a ton of stuff always happening. You know, there was animal sacrifices, there was services, there was reading of the Torah. And so they needed money to actually make these things run. And so Nehemiah's frustrated when he returns. He's saying, look, these people are not getting their due portion. So we, we seriously need to figure out what's going on here. We seriously need to get rid of anything that is hindering that and be willing to return to God again and do the right thing again. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to our personal finances, but just in general, what we dedicate our time and our resources to. So our resources can be financial, but if you don't have a ton of money or you know maybe you're on a single income or maybe that's just not your financial situation, that your resources might be something different, which might be your time and it might be your talent. It might be whatever you have to offer the world that isn't financial, your skills, your unique abilities, your giftings. This question is, are you giving your best unto God? Are you giving God his due portion? And your his due portion, surprise, surprise, is all of you. Are you dedicating everything in your life to him? Are you putting aside time and effort and talent and skills in order to invest in other people, to love God, to love others? Are you actually doing that? Are you doing that intentionally? And I don't, I, I don't always do this perfectly either. Am I waking up every single day and going to my job and working intentionally for God? Am I allocating my resources in a responsible way? This can be your personal finance. And I have a I have an episode about some biblical principles for personal finance that I'll make sure to link if you're interested in looking through that or listening to that one and looking through the resources that I've included and the tips that I included for that. But just an example is, are you allocating what you have, even if it's not a lot? Are you allocating it to God? Are you allocating it to the loving and serving other people so that his light can be spread and shown in the world? And so this is a really convicting question. Are you giving God his due portion, which is all of you? Are you dedicating everything that you do, everything that you say to him? Are you interested in honoring him? And if you're not, ask him. Ask him for that desire. Ask him for help and wisdom in doing that. And even on the most practical aspect of it, are you tithing? Are you giving? Are you giving to your church? And that's that's something I talk about in my personal finance episode. So 
you know, if you want to check that one out, I would say definitely listen to that one because I don't have time to get into all of that. But it's just a convicting reminder. Are we doing the right things with what we have? Are we willing to reform that? And if we're not asking God to help us be willing to leave those things and to cleave closely to what he wants and to pursue what he wants with all those resources and those skills. Because if you're hoarding all the things you're good at for yourself or you're hoarding all your resources and money for yourself, then chances are you aren't actually doing, you know, you're not having the fruit of the spirit that's pouring out from any revival that you might have experienced. The third category that I mentioned is priority reforms. Are your priorities in the right place? Nehemiah had returned and he saw that people were working on the Sabbath when they weren't meant to be doing that. First of all, you know, there's nothing wrong with actually working. There was nothing wrong with the fact that they were doing certain things. They just shouldn't have been doing them on the Sabbath, which was meant to be kept holy and dedicated unto the Lord, to be honoring him, to be thanking him, to be praising him, to be engaged with him, and to be resting because our bodies need rest and physically need to have absence of work and physical labor in order to recover. That's just how we're built. And so Nehemiah came back, saw that they were not honoring the Sabbath, and you know this is not necessarily something we can relate to, but they were pressing wine. They were treading wine on the day the Sabbath. And so that might not look like treading wine or pressing wine for you and preparing wine, but what is it for you? What are things that you are, what are things that you're prioritizing over God and over time with God? And this is convicting for me as well. What are things that I'm, I'm willing to spend my time on before I spend time with God? What are things that I'm doing before I'm making intentional time for him or to serve others? And those may be good things. There's nothing wrong with pressing wine. There's nothing wrong with working. There's nothing wrong with dedicating time to your hobbies. But if you're doing it at the expense of time with God and growing with God, then there is an actual problem in your life. If you're not honoring any Sabbath, if you're not taking any rest, if you're not taking any time to thank God, to be grateful for God, then, you know, what are you doing? What's the whole point of it? And this is a, we did a whole episode, Liv and I did an episode on Haggai, which is a book that's all about getting your priorities straight, getting things reoriented back around God. And and in that situation, the Israelites were rebuilding their own homes before they were building the temple of God. And so they were literally, quite literally building their house without any kind of presence of God among them. And so are you doing the same thing? Are you building your life? Are you building up things in your life, whether that's your career or your finances or your relationships? Are you working on striving for things in the absence of God? Because ultimately, it's going to be meaningless without him. Anything you do without the presence of God is just going to fall to waste. What are you building on your own? What are you attempting to build on your own? Maybe it's a name for yourself. What are you doing in your life that you're willing to put it at the expense of God? And that I honestly, you know, I have no idea what that could look like for you. For me, honestly, sometimes it can just be working really hard and then spending time with friends and family that I'm willing to do that at the expense of spending time with God and not saying those th- those things are great things. I'm not saying those are bad things. Investing in your family and your friends and working hard at your job are great things, but then using those maybe as excuses to say, I'm tired or I'm kind of pooped out. I don't want to, you know, spend time with God or get into the word of God. What are you placing as a priority over God? What is it? And if you're not, that's amazing. If you're not doing that, that's incredible. But I think for most of us, we could probably determine there is something that we need to be placing less priority and time on doing so that we can be honoring God and place aside time to be spending time with him. And not just spending time with him, but to be dedicating to his work and to be just thanking him and being in his presence and being grateful for the things that we do have. And the last one, the last category that we have is relational reform, relationship reform, which is a huge one. This is one that we could probably spend a series of episodes on, but this is the last category that we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 13. So again, he's returning, he comes back, and he sees that Israel has fallen into the same trap that they have often fallen into, which is marrying with pagans. So giving their daughters over to people who, men who are pagan, or marrying pagan women themselves is what the men were doing. And so the, and again, these were unrepentant pagans. So these are pagans who were not willing to denounce the gods of their people in order to follow the one true God of Israel, which is surprise spoiler the only god and so they're following false gods which again when you place in your community people who are pagan or people who don't follow god or who are of the world pretty soon that brings you astray so whether that meant they had idols in their home or they were worshiping other gods or they were ignoring god's laws or they were willing to stray away from the way of life that god had set up for them they were sinning again. They had fallen into this this cyclical issue that you will notice with Israel over and over again is intermarrying in 
with something that is not of God. And so Nehemiah went in, he cleansed all those things. He was, again, very frustrated. He was very passionate about this. He was wrathful about it. He was angry. He was righteously angry for the fact that people were not following God's law. And so he went in and he cleansed He cleansed them and said, you are not be to be in romantic relationships that God has told you not to be in. And so because this is specifically dedicated to romantic relationships, just going to give a word. If you, if you are dating someone, if you are involved with someone who is not of God and who is not interested in his ways and who is pulling you further and further into the world at the expense of being with Christ, just take advice from Nehemiah. Don't take it from me, but take it from Nehemiah. You probably shouldn't be with that person, especially if they don't look at all like they're on the road to becoming Christian or they have no interest in that. You should also have nothing to do with that relationship either. I'm going to leave it at that. We've, we could have a whole relationship series on that, but I just wanted to throw that out to you. The bigger picture, the bigger principle that we learned from Nehemiah is, again, not to be intermarrying ourselves with things that are not of God. And this doesn't always have to be a romantic relationship. This could be anything or anything that you're engaged in that is not of God, that you are willing to mark yourselves to, that you're willing to connect yourself with, that you're willing to spend time doing or research sources doing that it's just not honoring to God and maybe it's something that isn't necessarily a bad thing but if you're placing it over God then it it absolutely is a problem so this is this is a reminder to us if we have experienced any kind of revival or reform is it going to be lasting we have to be willing to take a genuine and sincere look at the relationships that we have and the ways that we can biblically and in a Christ-like way Christ-like fashion improve them so if it's a relationship that is completely not of God is not honoring to him at all whether it's our sin or their sin or, or whatever it may be is cutting that relationship off but if it's a relationship where we have been sinning or making mistakes or we are the ones that have something to apologize for being willing to ask for forgiveness to admit our faults and whether it's a relationship where they're the person that has wronged us and they're the person that has done things against us not being resentful not being bitter be willing to forgive them and to demonstrate the fruits of the holy spirit in that relationship maybe i'm hitting home for some of those but what really what this has to do with t- being willing to take a very real and hard look and assessment at your immediate community, your family, your friends, the people that you are engaged with. Are you on right terms with people? Are you in good places with these people? Or if you're not, are you striving to improve that if you need to? And if it cannot be repaired, are you healthily leaving and letting go of that relationship? What relational reforms are you making in your life? And I would say probably for most of, I maybe there's that really rare person who's like, all my relationships are great. They're all perfect. I don't have anything to change. That's very unlikely. There's very likely something in your life or a relationship in your life that you can work on in a tangible and real way. Cutting out what is pagan, cutting out what is idolatrous and adulterous in your life, what is against God, what is not honoring to him, and what doesn't reflect him in any way. So, what are you intermarrying into your life? What are you connecting yourself to? What are you being willing to commit adultery against God for and getting rid of whatever that is? So in conclusion, going back to what this whole podcast episode is about, are revivals biblical? Absolutely. Yes, they are. We see that revival happens very frequently in the Bible or really passionate, emotional, spiritual experiences are frequented without the, throughout the Bible. We see this happen often. We see this happen with individuals and also groups of people. We could also think about Pentecost and these other situations where Jesus was going around and preaching and people had this very emotional response to what was being preached. It's absolutely normal and it's good to have an emotional re- response to what is happening, especially when you're being, re- being rebuked or convicted of your sin. So yes, Revivals, having passion, it's absolutely biblical. But what is also biblical is having something that follows, like I said, strategic planning, faithful equipping for how you're going to follow up on whatever was earned out of that. And so we see that Nehemiah was extremely wrathful. He was super passionate. And so it is okay. And it's great to see those things exemplified. When we see that there is there is emotional or there's this kind of emotional response that we're seeing from people, we shouldn't be so quick to discount it. We should not be doing that. We should not be incredibly critical or judgmental. But at the same time, we can be decisive. We can be discerning. We can be wise. And we can use the word of God to be able to critique things in a way that is still loving and is still kind, but is not just 
just throwing out the whole playbook. We need to be willing to 100% be, be in both boats at the same time, which is possible, which is possible with the word of God because God is both just and he is love. He's not just one or the other. And so Christ exemplified that for us perfectly. He loved people, but yet he was still willing to convict them of their sin and rebuke what was untrue. The last thing that I just want to mention briefly is that when the Israelites were rebuilding the the wall in Jerusalem, in Nehemiah, there is a passage that talks about how they defended against their enemies. The end of chapter 4 says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Israel, that there may be a guard for us by night and may be labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept a weapon at his right hand. So there is this implication here that they are physically holding a weapon in one hand and they are building the wall with the other hand. But then also there is this image that there may be some people working and there's some guys that are defending or standing near them or closer to the outside of the wall in order to defend against the enemies and the people who hate God, who want to attack God and attack God's people. The Israelites quite literally built the wall with one hand and they defended against enemies with the other. And we need to be willing to do the same thing. With our left hand, we should be willing to build up God's church and use all the tools and resources available to do that. But in our right hand, we have to be willing to defend sound faith, sound doctrine, and theological consistency that is consistent with the Word of God and the Bible. Just because we're joyful and we're happy that revival is happening in people's lives in at such an incredible scale with tens of thousands of people, that doesn't mean that we can just let our guard down. We could lack discernment, that we can just allow false doctrine or flimsy theology to seep into our church, to seep into our body. That is exactly what Nehemiah was opposed to and what he was so angry about because the Lord had placed that anger in him to be angry that there was incorrect things happening that were against God. So we stay on our guard. Even if people are mad at us, even if people criticize us, if they call us skeptics, they call us critical, we should still be discerning, but again, to be kind and loving at the same time, to build with one hand and defend with the other, to be willing to build up God's kingdom and his people with one hand and with others still be willing to combat false doctrine and to push away the enemies of fight back against things that are untrue because at the first sign of allowing lack of truth or sin to seep in they see that there's spiritual and there's emotional and moral denigration that happens in the whole community if we're willing to happen just a little bit in like the israelites were it will start to seep into their whole community and their whole lives and all everything around it same thing is true for our lives when we allow these little white lies or these little sins or these little truths on lack of truth or untruths to seep into our lives the more it festers the more it grows the further it spreads and so we intermarry ourselves or we connect ourselves with things that are in opposition to god or people that are in opposition to god and that has a really really bad effect on us and can have a lasting one and can pull us away from god and so that is not what we're interested in what we're interested in is leading a holy life that is dedicated to god because it's joyful because it's beautiful because it's something to celebrate just like the israelites we're told to go celebrate it's something that we can be resting in and to be joyful and not because it's this hardened weathered strict life where we're not allowed to do anything and we have to abide by all these rules because we're free to love other people because we're so secure in who we are reform it needs to be lasting it needs to be pervasive it needs to seep into all different parts of our lives whether that's us as a temple maybe it's our finances and resources Maybe it needs to be our cha- the change in priorities. Maybe it needs to be some changes we make in our relationships, whatever it is for you. It was true for the Israelites then. It's true for you now. And it's true for anyone who attended or was part of the Asbury revival that there needs to be something concrete, strategic, and faithful that follows. And unlike the Israelites completely contrastly to the Israelites, we have the te- we have direct access to the Holy Spirit because we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Unlike them, they had a physical geographical location they had to return to, to be able to be in the presence of Christ and to make to be in the presence of God the Father and to make sacrifices. They had to be in the tent that they had to be clean to enter. They had incredibly arduous and detailed rules for a good reason, and they were holy rules. They are not bad things, but they had a lot of detailed things that they had to be willing and aware of to follow. We don't have that. We are blessed with the fact that we can approach the throne of grace with complete confidence, knowing that Jesus has paid for our every sin. He was the final and one sacrifice for all so that we don't have to go through that process. We are under the new covenant now. We have immediate and direct access to God 
Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We have access to all of that right now. You sitting right now, just listening to this episode or me recording it or whatever you're doing, whether you're in your car or doing chores or just listening to this, whatever you are doing or wherever you are, you have direct and immediate access to something the Israelites had to cleanse themselves for and to enter and follow rules to enter and to be part of. So that in itself is a blessing to be grateful for the fact that we have that. And so because we are grateful, not because we want to be saved, because we already are saved and have the gift of free and eternal salvation, because we are grateful for that, that is why we follow God's law. That's why we work on reforming these things in our lives with the by the grace of God, through the strength of Jesus only, not on our own strength, but why we change these things and reform these things in our life in a practical way because we're unwilling to stay the same way we, we always were. We're unwilling to just remain in the sin, to allow sin to seep into the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is our, our hearts, our minds, our, our souls, and in our finances and our resources in our priorities, in our relationships, we're unwilling to allow sin to seep in and to fester and to stay. So my final my final thoughts for all this. Revival reform is biblical. And again, from the principles that we learned from Nehemiah, there needs to be genuine follow-up. And time will only tell for all these individuals who attended the Asbury University revival, all these people that experienced something there. We won't, maybe we won't get to see the news stories of all the things that happened, all the follow, all the follow-up from that. But for these individuals who truly encountered the Holy Spirit, I truly believe that God will change their lives for the better and will continue to sanctify them because he who began good works in us is faithful and just to complete them. He's not just going to leave you where you are. So if you are someone who experienced something from the Asbury University arrival, whether that was you actually being there and visiting or whether that's because you experienced something just by watching the videos and talking to other people about it, whether you experienced something in any way, if you were impacted in any way by hearing about the Asbury revival, that there will be true and lasting change because he is faithful and just to complete that work. And he is not giving up on you. He's not going to keep you where you are. He's not going to let you stay where you are, which means he might put you some through some uncomfortable things. He might put you through some painful and challenging things to continue to transform you, to conform you more, to be more like Christ and more like his life. That's my thoughts on this revival. That's my thoughts on reform in general and, and what that looks like in our lives as Christians. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope it was helpful. I hope it gave you some things to think about and maybe some applications to take into your life or changes in your relationship with God, that this will help you in the future, that you're able to return to this episode. So I hope you've enjoyed it and I will catch you on the next one.